Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. Okay, so Kathy, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, you know, I always try to start off with asking participants what their background in dentistry is and how did you ever get into dentistry in the first place? Well, you know, I graduated from high school at a time where women had like three or four options, right? You got married. I had high school classmates that immediately got married. I went to their weddings, right? And then you could be a teacher, a secretary, or a nurse. That's what the guidance counselor kind of said. These, these are your options. We had a couple of weirdo women in my senior high school class. One went on to engineering at Tufts. We all thought that was very peculiar. And then we had another woman go off to Rensselaer for engineering. And we thought that was really bizarre. Wow. But her brother had graduated from the same high school and he was in engineering at Rensselaer. So, you know, and at the time there were no, women just didn't do this stuff. So I went to nursing school at Mass General Hospital and I, I loved it. I got really bored in my second year because I began to realize I knew as much as some of the residents I was working with. And, you know, they wouldn't take advice. I used to say, you might not want to do that. And they do it anyway. And then I'd get to run around cleaning up the disaster, right? So, so I finished nursing school, but I transferred over to BU. And because it was really new at the time for a nurse to have a baccalaureate degree. Wow. Yeah, it was very odd. Most nurses were three-year diploma school programs. Mount Auburn Hospital, Mass General, Boston Medical Center, Cambridge, Mount Auburn Hospital. So Lawrence Memorial Hospital in Medford, they all had nursing schools and they produced three-year graduated nursing classes and you got your license and you, and you went to work. So once I got to BU, that was the beginning of the anti-war movement during the Vietnam era. I walked into, you know, giant anti-war protests at Boston University. I got all excited. I never got involved in anything like that before in my life. And the people there, I had some professors who started to make me think that I could really be anything I wanted to be, right? The women's movement started. So I had a... Uh, Howard Zinn. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I know the name, but I, I don't know who it is. He was a big political writer and rewrote the history of the U.S. in a socialist leftist leaning, right? So I went from being in a Catholic high school to a very conventional nursing school to all hell breaking loose, Boston University. And when I actually switched my major to pre-dan pre-med, because I think I realized I could be more than, you know, a nurse. But I ended up working in nursing for eight years, right? And it was great. I loved it. But I got to a point where I said, you know what? I should be asking more of myself. And I wanted to do more. Steve, who you've met, was in construction. And, and he was an accounting major at BU at the same time. That's how we met. And we were struggling. It was the early 70s to late 70s. The economy was not great for accountants and nurses. Nurses got paid very poorly. You had to work a lot of night shifts if you wanted to make a, a decent living. We wanted to get married and have kids. And so we did. We got married in 74 and didn't have a nickel between us. I mean, we used to go to the grocery store with a clicker to add up our groceries because we didn't know if we had enough cash to pay for them, right? But we were pretty happy. After seven or eight years of me working night shifts, I said, you know, maybe I should look at graduate school. And then the position I was working for was very much against women going to medical school. She actually said to me, you won't be happy. I've given everything up for medicine. She was the only tenured Harvard medical professor in the entire system at Mass General. And she said, you'll be sacrificing your whole life. You're married. You know, you won't have time for kids. You won't be home for your husband. This was her perception of what it took for her to be successful, right? She graduated from medical college, say, in the 40s, right? 
So another physician I worked with overheard me talking to her and said, heck, my sister's a dentist. You should think about dentistry. It's awesome. She has a great life. She's her own boss. She gets to treat patients. You know, I loved doing technical stuff. You know, I loved the little gutsy machines and starting IVs and intubating. I mean, I love that stuff. So I had lunch with her sister who was a Latvian. She went to dental school in Latvia, but had relocated to the States and got her license. And I knew dentistry. My dad was a dentist, but he was not a happy dentist. He was miserable. And so dentistry was the last thing I thought of because it was obvious he wasn't happy. He did it three days a week. He loved his coaching job. He loved being public health chair of the board. You know what I mean? He was really active in a lot of other things. Dentistry was something that paid the bills for him. Wasn't anything he got all excited about. He wasn't a member of organized dentistry. I doubt that he attended any Tufts reunions. He graduated from Tufts in 47. He wasn't the kind of dentist you and I hang out with, right? The actively engaged, excited. So, you know, I thought about it and and I said, okay, I'll apply to dental school because I think I probably would like it. And when I told my dad, he wasn't very happy. He said, why would you do that? I mean, he literally said, why would you do that? He said, why don't you just marry a dentist? And I said, dad, I've been married for seven years. You were there. I mean, he didn't think it was funny. He kind of started talking to his patients about me, but very reluctantly. Like it wasn't a, oh my God, you can join the practice and this is great, right? He kind of ignored it. So I went to, I love dental school, by the way, that I have never had more fun in a large group of people where there were like 16 women and the rest were guys. And I grew up in the middle of four boys, right? I'm, I'm a middle child of seven, two boys older than me, two boys younger than me. And that's where I think I learned, you got to be tough. If you want to get attention, you got to compete. You got to play sports. You've got to Don't let them bully you. Don't let them shove you around. I mean, I was like a a local grammar school park enforcer. When boys started picking on kids, I was like deemed the the park ranger, you know? And and so I think my upbringing really had a lot to do with why I loved dental school because I wasn't afraid of competing and I still love competing. I still love to win. So I had a ball in dental school and it was a three-year graduating class. So we were very little time off. It was 24-7 with all your buddies. And I'm still best friends with my dental school classmates. I mean, we may not see each other a lot, but when we do hang out, it's like 40 years just never existed. We're back in school, being stupid, laughing at stupid things. And it was the greatest time of my life. So when I Unfortunately, when I was a junior in dental school, my dad committed suicide. Oh. Yeah, because... Oh, I had no idea. He was very unhappy. And, you know, I missed some school. My class was great. They turned out for me. And, you know, I got through. I was a junior going into my senior year. Oh. He died in March. So, you know, I finished. But in the meantime, my mother didn't know what to do with the practice. She ended up selling it to someone that was a very different person than my father was. You know, his patients were grumbling. They weren't very happy with the new guy. And um, I kind of had to help her with all of this. And that's when I realized how much dentists take care of other dentists because I had two faculty that just stepped in and took my hand and kept me going. Wow. So they helped you with your, your dad's practice? Well, they, they did what they could. You know, there was no way of just handing a practice over. But my two most closest mentors were Howie Kessler, who was an oral surgeon in Medford, who my father admired greatly. And then John Mead, who was a general dentist in Medford that I adored, he was on the clinic floor. And, you know, he couldn't by the practice. He was in the middle of raising his kids. and But man, he was over my mother's house all the time. He would come find me in clinic and say, are you doing okay? You know, that kind of stuff. Wow. So those two guys kept 
me as their closest little mentee for years and years and years. John was the one who got me involved at Tufts. He wouldn't let it go. He was a brilliant nag. He's the one I who introduced me to Fred White, who was Janice's Moriarty's mentor, right? Right, right, right. And Howard Kessler got me on the board at Delta Dental because he thought they needed a young woman and he didn't care what the old guys thought. So I leaned on them a lot. And a few other people, you know, I think several dentists in the Medford East Middlesex district area really were extremely helpful to me. There were some who were not. When I got out of dental school, I took a job with Omnidentics. Do you remember them? I don't remember them. Like the first DSO. Mm -hmm. It was uh, the guy who owned Mr. Donut had capital to invest and he wanted to invest in dental clinics because his personal dentist thought he could make a gold mine. Sound familiar? Yeah. So in 1981, I'm graduating on June 12th. I'm pregnant. I have my oldest kid on graduation day. And I had no job offers in hand. My general practice residency program called me up and said, thank you, but no thank you. We just heard you had a baby and we don't want any new mothers in the program because you won't be able to carry the load with your three compadres. So I was twiddling my thumbs after graduation and they offered me a job and I took it. It was a mall-based clinic, beautiful equipment, not terribly great at you know, high quality dental practice, but I learned a lot. They gave me great clinical experience and they gave me a paycheck, but I got hate mail from dentists in my hometown. Like, how dare you go to work for them? Or what were you thinking? Or your father would hate to see you doing this. You know, the same reaction you get when a DSO practice opens anywhere now, but it was really hurtful. I mean, nobody else would hire me. I remember calling Barbara Kay, who I adored, she was president of the alumni the day, the year I graduated. And I begged her for a job and she just wanted to give me a job so much, but she said, I don't have the patient load right now. But it was, you know, 40 resumes, no job offers. Omnidentics offered me a job and it was the only thing I could do. And I learned a lot and I'm grateful for them. I spent a year there. And then when um, a slot opened up at a public health hospital, or a general dentist at a teaching site for Tufts, I grabbed it and I loved it. It was the Brighton Marine Public Health Hospital in Brighton. I stayed there for six years. I loved it because there were specialists there, there were dental students there, there were residents there. The director was a young guy named Fred. He was great to me. And I learned so much good dentistry there and so much interaction with the primary medical care. They were across the hall. And because it was a Department of Defense site, I was seeing all these young recruits. I was seeing retirees. We got paid by the Department of Defense. So I never had to deal with the business side, which was good and bad. But I mean, it was a wonderful place to be. You could do the best dentistry and learn from specialists that would sit right next to you. And I ended up teaching a lot of dental students in my time there. We used to have dental students from Tufts, BU, and Harvard. And so it's real fun to compare and contrast. You know, of course, I always thought tough students were the best, but. You were a little partial. Yeah, a little partial. And, you know, and then we had a family. Stephen was old enough to start kindergarten. And I said, you know, maybe it's time for me to kind of think about going into a private practice. My father's patients were not happy. And they kept calling my mother saying, when is your daughter going to come back? and open up a practice in Medford. And, you know, I said, well, how about I rent a, a place two nights a week? And so I did, I worked my day job. And then Tuesday and Thursday nights, I'd go, I borrowed money. I cashed in Steve's life insurance policy and that gave me enough money to set up an operatory in this other dentist vacant office, right? He, he worked in half of the space and I had this little operatory in the other half. We barely talked. He was a wonderful man, but you know he would leave and I would come in. And um, so I started seeing my dad's patients and within three years, I had enough volume to start my own practice. So we went out and I was looking for uh, an office, right? So my mentor friend, Howard Kessler, oral surgeon, was scrubbing into surgery with 
a surgeon, a general surgeon, and the general surgeon said, you know, I want to sell my house and I have a beautiful home office. Do you know anybody who might be interested in a home office? Wow. And the guy said, and of course, Howard Kessler said, yes, I do know somebody. So we went and met and I told the surgeon, said, this is a beautiful house and you have a beautiful home office and I have no money. And he said, well, you're a friend of Howard's and I trust Howard. So why don't I balloon you the payment? You pay interest only for five years. Then you'll be making enough money to go to a bank and borrow enough to pay me the house. I was like, okay. So there you go. Wow. Yeah. My husband had a lot of sleepless nights because the house was more money than God. And then we sold it when I took the job at the ADA, which was another traumatic event for my husband. But that's how I got a practice started. And the fact that it was a home office attached, but separate on a good street, a good location. And I practiced there for almost 20 years before we moved the practice to Winchester. You practiced there for 20 years? Yep. Wow, I didn't know it was that long. And then you moved to Winchester. And then how long after that did Janice join you? Well, Janice joined me in the home office as an associate. And um, we outgrew that practice really fast, but it was hard finding a good location. You know, Janice was living in John Mead's house in Medford. This is what's so insulated about dentistry. And she liked Winchester. I liked Winchester. It was the next town over. But we were literally the only two dentists who lived in Medford and practiced in Winchester. All the other dentists in Medford practiced in Medford and lived in Winchester because it was a kind of a nicer community, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I was real happy with what uh, we did. And Janice and I were partners when we got the space in Winchester and we outfitted it and, and put everything in place and they're still there. And it's still a great practice. I still get letters from old patients and, you know, people, you know, will tell me they drove down Main Street in Winchester and thought of me, even though Janice took my name off of the front window really right away. <laughs> 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 was not messing around. So, you know, that was, gosh, back in 2001 when I left the practice and took the job at Delta Dental. And it was Howard Kessler who offered me the job at Delta Dental. He was still on the board. He was chairing the board. I think at the time, and he called me up and he said, you know, we think you would be a good interim CEO just a couple of days a week, nothing serious while we reorganize and look for a new CEO. And, and after six weeks, they said, why don't you take the job? So that's how I ended up leaping out of dentistry and into uh, a management job. I felt ill-prepared, but honestly, I had gotten a little bored with dentistry because it got easy. And so I went back to school when I was 46 and got an MPH and a, and a business degree at Harvard. Harvard didn't have a part-time program, so I had to twist myself into a pretzel, working certain, you know, trying to work my practice and then trying to get classes in that I, I had to do for requirements. And uh, my staff was great, but I drove them crazy because I kept changing my practice hours every semester. And you know how crazy that makes a staff team. Right. But they hung in there with me and they, they only complained a little. I tried to be a good employer. So I would, you know, give good benefits and good working conditions and make it fun. And so they stuck with me. So after I got that degree, I saw the world in a different way. And that's when I really got interested in business. And so I graduated from there in 98. And then by 2001, I was in the CEO job at Delta. So that degree really changed the course of my life, just like dentistry did. And I had a good run at Delta. I think we had a good relationship with dentists. And I was very tuned into their stress and what was bugging them. And I enjoyed my time there a lot. Now, do you find that when you left Delta, that, that part of the reason why, you know, what was the impact that you were looking out for dentists? I often wondered that because that goes contrary to the insurance industry, right? It was pretty common for a Delta to have a dentist as a CEO. When I got involved with the Delta Association, which is the association of all the Delta plans, I would say at least half of the CEOs were dentists with similar backgrounds to mine. 
and they were great. I had a lot of camaraderie with them. We were very much the dentist insurance company. We were started with ADA money back in the 60s, and they were very tuned into taking care of their dentist networks. And, you know, the Premier program was a great program. It's gone now, but it was a great program. And then the industry started to shift. And I think it got very competitive because uh, the dental benefit growth had flattened out on the private side. You know, employers had the program. They didn't want to change it. They didn't think dental was terribly important, but it kept employees happy and retained them. So we, you know, it was kind of like steady state. My last couple of years at Delta was a growth issue. We needed to grow and we knew the only place to grow was in Medicaid. And so the board made a terrific decision to get into the Medicaid space and reorganize the company. And as part of that reorganization, there wasn't room uh, for two CEOs. We had to have a CEO for the growth company and a CEO at the parent. And it was clear we didn't need that kind of duplication of effort. And so we, re we had asked for investor capital to create this growth strategy. And when we paid them off, it was clear we didn't need two separate companies. So we pushed the companies back together and it was the right decision and I supported it, even though it was gonna mean one of us was gonna lose our jobs. And I think the board made a good decision. You know, I was ready to move on and I wanted to get more experience with a public company. And I had developed a very kind of good working relationship with the VCs who were funding this growth plan. And I got recruited over to United Health Group. And it was, you know, it was an exciting opportunity. I wanted to be with a big giant company. I wanted to see how it worked. And, you know, I found some things I liked and found a lot of things I didn't like, but it was a great learning experience. And I think I actually learned how to be a better manager when I was at United Health Group. Because, you know, a dentist walking into a CEO position, nobody's going to tell you the truth. Why? It's kind of like nobody's going to tell the king he has no clothes on, right? Mm. So you don't get a lot of candid feedback when you're, you're going from owning a dental practice to, to being the top dog in a company, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a chance to really grow my management skills until I got to United Health Group. And then I got a lot of really good lessons, hard lessons on how to manage large teams, how to manage risk, how to manage money. I never had to do a budget. I mean, I approved a budget, but I didn't have to do the grunt work to build it. I didn't know how to run uh, technology. So at United, it was like a fast course on how to be a good manager and how to take feedback that was horrible sometimes, but you just had to suck it up and take it and learn from it. So I was working in DC and, and my family was a little bit tired of me commuting on the weekends from DC to Boston. And so my husband was complaining a little bit about, you know, why can't you live in Boston and, and do this job? We still had the house in Medford. And I said, they don't allow remote working. You know, you have to be in the office, even though I was traveling a ton. And so he called me up, my husband called me up one day and he goes, you know, the ADA is looking for an executive director. You can do all this stuff. Why don't you talk to them? And I said, you know, that would make us move to Illinois. And he said, Oh, they wouldn't let you work remote? I said, no, honey. <laughs> <laughs> nice idea, though, Stephen. So that's how I, I got to the ADA. Wow. He sent me the ad. I sent my curriculum vitae and my resume in. I don't know, about two months later, they called me for an interview. It, you know, it took them about a year. And then when I told United Health Group I was going to be leaving, they were horrified. They said, you know, was it your boss? It, was it your 360? You know, was it your pay? And I said, no, they, I have a job at the ADA. And they issued a press release within 15 minutes because it was like a badge of honor for them. Big to do. To have a, a chief dental officer move over and take the ADA job. So, but I came into the ADA job just as unprepared as I did all the other jobs. You just learn by the seat of your pants. But it's been a pretty good run, MJ. I just amazing run Kathy amazing run so talk a little bit about you know as a woman you know you're the first executive director you you have a lot of firsts as a female which is impressive 
But as the first executive director female in a fairly male-dominated board of directors, and I don't know if it was 100% male at the time when you took over, I don't, I don't remember. I think there were a couple, there were one or two women, but they were scarce. Yeah. But I remember that announcement and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, good for her. I was so excited to hear that a female, like in, in my mind, and I, I'm going to be really honest with you, in my mind, I never ever before that moment in time ever thought that a woman could take that high level of a position. And I don't know why, because there wasn't, you know, there was no, no sense that I, I had to hold back or pull back from anything I was doing, but that you just were absolute proof that women can do anything they want, you know, and set their minds on that you, we are qualified. So what was it like in the beginning working in a male dominated field? Well, the interview process alone was kind of odd. I would walk into a room of about 25, mostly men all men, and they would each have one question on a card, and they'd each ask me the question, and I'd answer it and move on to the next question. So it was a little bit artificial, but I think I may not have been their first choice, to be honest with you. Otherwise, I think the search would have gone faster. It was a lot of several months before I was interviewed and then interviewed again, and I had already been ready to take another job in Boston running a healthcare foundation that was a great job. And the same day I was supposed to give them my final answer was when John Finley, who was president of the ADA at the time, called me and asked me if I'd like to accept the ADA job. Wow. I was stunned. I said, let me call you right back. I called Steve and I said, okay, they've offered me the job. I haven't even asked what the salary is, but are you willing to move to Illinois or not? Because I need to know right now. And if you're not, that's okay. I'll just tell them no. And he said, no, of course, this is a great job. And um, so that's how I ended up at the ADA. I don't think they were ready for me. I think what the board thought they hired was an administrator. I think what the board thought they were hiring was someone who would kind of just be quiet and do the administration and keep the lights on and you know, I think they had an odd idea about what a CEO does. Also, I, I was somewhat surprised by the governance. It wasn't very well structured and it didn't function very effectively compared to my other experiences on the United Group board and, and on the um, Delta board, where I learned a lot of great governance kind of knowledge and skill. And I had actually gotten very involved with the National Association of Corporate Directors. So I had a lot of information and knowledge on what good governance looks like. And I would say I was shocked a little bit by the ADA kind of playing loosey goosey was more like a club and they didn't have a lot of structure around how to make decisions or how to set up committees to do work. And then, you know, I think the employees were not in a good place when I got there. There were, I think, two years or two and a half years where there was no CEO in place. Everyone in the senior executive team essentially had been let go. So no CFO, no CEO, no COO. And the head of HR and the general counsel were feared by the employees. So it was a very traumatic time for the employees. And that was very apparent, too, because nobody would talk to me. I saw a lot of people looking down at their knees in meetings when I said, how is it to work here? Like they, nobody was willing to speak up. So, so there were a lot of issues. There were financial issues. We had an IRS audit going on. There were issues around the functioning of the foundation. There were a lot of HR issues percolating. So it was a very kind of messy time, but you know, like, I did when I was a kid, you roll your sleeves up and you just work the problem, right? And you don't look back, you just keep moving forward and you surround yourself with the best teammates you can find, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I learned in schoolyard basketball, pick the kids who can make the shot, right? And get the rebound. So, you know, I played basketball all through college. So, so I started hiring people from outside of associations that could bring us to a modernization and higher level skill set. And it just, it took about three to five years of just patiently rebuilding and teaching the board 
good governance in a way that they didn't feel like it was being shoved on them. And I think we've gotten to a really good place. I learned a lot of management by mistake all through when I owned a practice, when I sold the practice, when I went into, I mean, I picked up a lot of good information by mistakes. Not the greatest way to learn, uh, but it is valuable because you never forget it. And I would say I brought all of that with me to the ADA, but mostly having a little bit of humility and compassion is a really good thing. And then people will trust you and they start telling you the truth. The minute you are trusted, you're good. And I walked around a ton and I met with people one-on-one and I still take all the new employees to breakfast and we just chat. You know, we, we get to know each other. I find out about their kids and their parents and why they took the job and what they liked about the job. So it's kind of a journey. You just don't go in and do miracles. You surround yourself with great people and then let them go and trust them and show them that you trust them and things get better. And they have. It's readily apparent to me every time I go to the ADA for a meeting how orchestrated, well-tuned, fine-tuned every area of the ADA is in at this point. And, you know, I did notice before that it wasn't as a finely moving machine like it is today. So it's readily apparent. So great job on the selection of the team and, and everybody that's participating. It's amazing. So from your journey, obviously you have many, many facets to choose from. You know, give us some advice for some of the younger women out there that might be thinking about alternative careers or, you know, just not sure what they want to do in dentistry, whether it's specialize or go into the business side of things. I too have transitioned into the business side, more of a business side of things. And I absolutely love it. I do. I loved private practice and I love to build that practice, but I love running things and organizing and and the project management aspect of things. So just some words of advice for some younger, younger women out there. Well, it's always a good idea to scan the horizon all the time and do like an emotional check-in. How do I feel right now? And if you find yourself dreading going to work or dreading that next operative patient or dreading dealing with HR issues, you know, think about why you feel that way and then do something different. Either get some training, take a course, do something that makes you feel like you're accomplishing something. And then pay attention to, you know, your instincts. What do you like to do? I loved the business side of the practice. I loved the restorative side, but I was pretty good at it and it got kind of easy. The business side always seemed to be more challenging. So I could I could say, you know, that was a good thing we got done this week. I don't know. You have to listen to how you feel and pay attention to it and not settle for less, you know, but find that thing that makes you happy and go after it because life is too short to spend five or 10 years being miserable and doing nothing to change your circumstances. So my advice to young women is make sure you're tuned into how you feel every day And then pursue those things that give you a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment and a higher purpose. You know, the why am I doing this? And if you can't answer that with a good answer, start expanding your horizons. Do a little research. Take a class. Talk to people and find out what options are out there. But to do nothing is such a horrid situation to be in. And, you know, when I thought about years later about how my dad was obviously not happy as a dentist. He was a first generation dentist and his patients adored him. He was the kindest, most generous man in the world, but he just didn't like going to work every day. And he did it for 30 years. Oh, that's a long time. And I wish, you know, I had a time machine. I would have gone back to when he was maybe in practice for 10 years. And I would have said, you know, how do you feel about going to work every day? And if he had said, well, I'm not that excited about it anymore, I would have said, let's talk about what else you can do, right? So don't settle for this is all there is, right? But keep pushing to find that sweet spot where you're happy, you know? Every day. There's a book I just love called The Happiness Advantage, I think Mm -hmm. is the name of it. 
you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm telling you, you have to constantly pursue what makes your heart feel good and what your brain finds rewarding. And when you find it, hang on and grow it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And a life lived with regret is a sad life, right? Because, you know, looking back, you got nothing but sad days and, and but just it means nothing. taking uncomfortable risks, right? Right. Right. So, you know, I remember when I decided to go to dental school, my husband was terrified when he saw how much the tuition was. He said, we'll never pay that back. I said, we will. But it was like more money than we earned. It was proportionally the same as I think what students are facing now in terms of how much you can earn your first two or three years out and that debt. So he was terrified we wouldn't be able to pay down the debt. I graduated during one of the worst recessions ever where gas interest rates were 14%. The first mortgage we had was 14.5%. And that scared the life out of us. We used to wait in line for gasoline because it was $7 a gallon. You know, thank God I was a dentist because my husband was laid off numerous times during the early 80s, right? He was working all kinds of hours just to hang on to his job. So, you know, I've seen recessions come and go. And I think having the resilience to land on your feet through hard times is really critical. And I have a little three-year-old grandson that lives with me, my daughter's child. And teaching him how to be resilient has to start early. Absolutely. Like you fall down, get back up. You're going to have to clean your room before we play with more toys. You know, I mean, that kind of being disciplined and kind of having some resilience. Can you get through a horrible, crushing period of time and come out the other end. I got to tell you, when my father died, I thought about dropping out of dental school. I just didn't know how I was going to get through it. And I did. I mean, you do, you just figure it out, you know, crushing disasters happen and you just have to find some way to pick yourself up and keep moving. Well, it's about the choice and perception of the event, right? You can perceive it as devastating. Oh my gosh, I'm never going to recover. Or the other side of the fork in the road is, okay, I have a choice here. I can get sucked into this or I can just take one step a day and keep moving forward. And, and fortunately for all of us, you took that one step a day going forward. I think there's a skill I learned because of my kids. I have four children, three of them adopted. And when we were, you know, getting to get through the adoption process, we had to attend a lot of childhood therapy, right? And I became pretty well trained in mindfulness and DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy, to help my three youngest kids. But that's where I learned mindfulness about focusing on the present, staying tuned into the moment right now, being able to control uh, negative self-talk and pushing it away, and focusing on positives. I mean, it, you can train your brain to do what you want it to do, just like you can train your legs to walk over to the refrigerator, right? So anytime I feel those negative self-talk habits we all have creeping in, you know, you, you just have to push them aside and say, that doesn't help me deal with the moment and what's in this moment that I can appreciate and be grateful for. So I know Tufts is doing a lot of mindfulness training. I think now it's becoming popular in the business world. I mean, I have a whole series of articles from Harvard Business Review on mindfulness. And I do a little bit of mindfulness training in the ADA to my employees because they're all stressed. Everybody's stressed out right now. Of course. Of course. That's my personal life that I picked up a lot of skill on, you know, how to help stay mentally flexible, you know, mm -hmm. to go with the punches and stand yourself back up and not dwell on negativity in the past. And I still tell my kids that you can't fix the past. Forget it. Move on. What's happening right now? What's happening tomorrow? And don't think too far out in the future because worrying doesn't do any good. Worrying does absolutely nothing except cause physical ailments like high blood pressure and facial tics and stressed out sore muscles and right trouble sleeping. It does nothing. It's a waste of energy. I say to my team all the time, don't worry about it because if you can't control it, it's not worth your energy. So we do a lot of deep breathing right now because everybody's COVID maxed out. And when I have a Zoom meeting with my team, we start with a deep breathing exercise. Great idea. 
it, it because we're so stressed out right now we've this crisis has made us run faster than we've ever had to run and i you know, have 500 people working remotely some who live by themselves and are feeling terribly isolated some with sick parents some with their quarantine so they feel doubly isolated and yet we still have to get the work out the door and it has to be a plus work i always tell everybody the ada can't afford to be wrong if we push something out that's wrong we've just embarrassed and humiliated the whole profession so we have to be very careful about what we do but still do it quickly and you know you have the same risk with dental students you know you worry about them being competent when they graduate but worrying doesn't help them be competent right no get to work give them something to do well that was i think the biggest stressor for us having this all happen at the time that it did thank goodness it wasn't earlier than you know march shutdown because at least they got to see patients up until march but some of them you know are not going to graduate on time you know and that's typical we have about 20 percent that usually you know are done by june a couple of stragglers are done by august but usually everybody's done by then and we've had to make some adjustments and we've had to do a lot of um, bench training again and and competency exams on the bench because of the mannequin as you know, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about getting rid of the uh, patient exam, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with the OSCE and, and the mannequin exams that Reb and CDC are putting out. So hopefully we can transition to that yeah. at some future time, because it's critically important. The, the ethical dilemmas that we're facing and the student stress I see it every single time we do it, and it is just not worth it, just not worth it. I always like to tell people, you know, you're feeling real feelings. We're not asking you to bury them or make them go away, but take a deep breath and try and focus on something positive. I will tell you, this crisis is accelerating some trends we've wanted to see happen for years, like getting rid of that single encounter high stakes patient exam. The OSCE is getting picked up by states because they are looking for an alternative. And so the other positive is we're using technology and teledentistry and telemedicine better than we've ever used it. I think we're going to see practices become highly efficient through using technology where, you know, I think some of the robotics and some of the technical things we're seeing coming in through the pipeline, uh, the minimization of surgical restorative care is going to be a huge boom where we finally can get dentists who think like physicians and not like bone surgeons right like every bone needs to be drilled every tooth needs to be drilled i think we're going to see ourselves transitioning to a, a profession that does more diagnostic and intervention type oral medicine that helps patients not get to a point where they need full mouth rehab and extractions and implants so I think there are real positives that, that we can use to pivot. I agree. What are your feelings about artificial intelligence coming up, up the pike, you know, and how that is going to impact? So, for example, one of the things that I'm a little bit concerned about is all of the data going into a database that's being collected on our insurance claims and using that either positively or can be used pretty negatively by investigating dentists. So I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm not sure how they're going to be using it yet, but how do you feel about it? So big data is like the brand new success story. So I agree with you around claims data. Claims data isn't that useful because it only is a record of what was done, not why. So you can't really use it to study population health at all. You can use it to understand practice patterns. You know, what are dentists doing? And I think most researchers are using it in that mode, but it doesn't mean we understand why they're doing what they're doing or whether they should be doing what they're doing. Most of the claims data is preventive. That's at least 80% of what is being submitted. And all the dental insurance companies have to dump their data into Fair Health. It's a public asset now. Ingenix used to be owned by United Health Group when I worked there. And the government stepped in and said, no, this is public resource. You've got to dump it into this database that's accessible to anybody. But claims data is really limited. We are trying to help 
move forward is getting diagnostic data. And we've got diagnostic codes approved now. They are embedded in most practice management systems. I think they're not being widely adopted. Mm-mm. But as uh, COVID impacts practices, we're starting to see dentists be more interested in diagnostic codes. You know, if you diagnose a patient with caries, what does that trigger in coverage from a benefit company side, right? And I think we'll, we'll see a shift on the third-party pay side. Third-party benefits are obsolete. That model that was built in the 60s is not a model that works anymore. We need to be focused on outcomes and capturing diagnostic data and understanding population health. The ADA is going to try and build a registry for dentistry where we can capture the diagnostic data, the treatment data, and the outcome data on key illnesses, things that really matter to people, and and use that over the next five years to collect all this big data that can be analyzed to show what works on a, a population basis and what doesn't work. Because right now, I think we assume that everything we do is great. But how do we know? We don't. We don't. I think we all rely on our own personal observations and antidotes, right? Well, in my hands, when I do it that way, 20 years later, the patient is still great. But that's not population health, right? It's individual. So I think dentistry has been slow to get big data harnessed. And I certainly think we should learn from medicine. Medicine got it wrong. They built multiple databases for every illness, and they don't have any ability to mine it collectively. I think IBM Watson is the closest thing they've come to a giant mineable database. But honestly, if your family member gets cancer and their oncologist says, this is the treatment we're going to do, what's the first thing your family member goes home and does? They go on the internet. They try and look it up and see if the best protocol. We don't have a giant source other than Watson to validate whether or not that is the best protocol or whether Johns Hopkins has something better. I have um, stories, and I bet you everybody does, of when you get a serious diagnosis, you almost have to navigate for yourself to make sure you're getting the right care, right time from the best people, the right price. And medicine built a mess. And we should learn from that, not ever go there. You know, transparent pricing is already in dentistry. We should hang on to that. Having a mineable database connecting diagnosis to treatment and what works and what doesn't work. We're on that road now. And I think we can learn not to make the same mistakes medicine made and do it better. And I think this COVID crisis is going to cause us to start thinking about safety in the dental practice again. Which is something I think has been missing for quite a while. Yeah. I've been to those safety conferences that Elsbeth started a couple of years ago. Critically important that we start tracking all of these things, especially implant failures. We don't have a system yet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard for us to look at our warts as a profession because we've never had anybody looking over our shoulder. And uh, I think that time is coming. But I would say the newer graduates welcome it. They're not afraid of Yelp. They're not afraid of being compared. They like working in teams. They like sharing data and information. And I love that. Uh, They are moving away from solo practice very quickly. And I think that's actually a nice trend. I think we'll end up with a better delivery system with more accountability and more transparency. Well, collaboration is critically important, don't you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's something that we did not have very much in dentistry. I'm sure you can, you can share the same story, but I remember when I first started looking for a space for my practice, I had a dentist in the town that I opened in in Lexington say to me, you'll never make it here. You know, there's just too many dentists. Oh, yeah. Oh, I got all that. I used to show up at uh, my East Middlesex Dental Society component meeting. And they, they, first of all, they thought I was a waitress. I always took drink orders. I learned not to wear a black suit to dental meetings. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. And then who, who's your doctor? Uh, you're looking at her. Or I'd sit at the table and the conversation would stop. Mm-hmm. Right? I think women just want to be great dentists. And I love the way dental students think now and that they're free of that burden of having to prove themselves over and over. 
I still think we need diversity as a huge value statement in the whole profession because I think women dentists should realize they're great dentists first and foremost. They don't have to justify themselves. We do need to have influence and women dentists do need to have power and they need to be able to negotiate with confidence. And I think what you said in the beginning about women sometimes don't have that confidence level that men have because of maybe how we're brought up, but it's time to go past that now. I mean, every time I hire a woman executive, I'm like, don't you want to negotiate your salary? Because every man I've ever hired comes back to me with a new number. What's your new number? And they're shocked that I even suggest it. Ask for more. Don't be afraid to ask for more. Be proud of the fact that you're asking for more. There's a great book by, um, it's called Confidence. I can't think of the author. She's a business school professor from Harvard. But I have a list of favorite books. And the other book I love is Sylvia Hewitt, who wrote Presence. Uh, Presence. Yeah. I think these are really good books uh, for women to read. It, It tells you, take what men do well and use it to your advantage. And men should take what we do well and use it to their advantage. Because they do some stuff that's terrific, right? But they are emotionally unplugged from the world. And then we have too much emotion sometimes in the world, too much empathy, and not enough hardcore, this is the decision that has to be made, we're going to move forward. So I think we should steal from each other. And the new management theories are coming out that prove that women's strengths are collaboration, empathy, emotional intelligence. And that right-left brain combo is extraordinarily powerful. I wouldn't be surprised at all if the next executive director of the ADA is another woman. The problem is, is the pool of potential leadership big enough to move that forward, right? Right. Because you look at the number of women dental deans, women department chairs, tenured faculty. Um, There's an insufficient pool of women researchers. So we've got to build the pool so that, you know, we can move that giant group of people up the ladder. And then that will create a sufficient pool to to have women represented adequately in the profession. It's not an accident. They've got to be intentionally cultivated and groomed and pushed. In addition, there's no CEOs of any DSOs yet, is there? I think there's a couple of smaller ones, but not the big ones. But again, I think it's because the entrepreneurial risk-taking is stronger in men. It just is. And women are more cautious, you know. They think more about what the failure could look like. And my attitude is, do your risk-benefit, but if it's all equal, take the darn risk. Mm -hmm. I agree. What's the worst thing that could happen, right? I could think of really terrible things, and none of them have to do with the risk I'm taking on a business decision. I mean, losing your home losing a child, being stricken with an untreatable fatal illness. Those are horrible things. I don't have any business decisions that I've had to make that fall into those categories. So, you know, when you reflect back, speaking of confidence, do you think that you gained your most confidence because you were in the middle of four boys? Or do you think that innately you just had it by watching somebody or you know, what do you think influenced you the most to have as much confidence as you have today? And was it always there? No, it wasn't always there. I suffered as a young kid with feeling very less than worthy. You know, I I would tell you I've had guilt around, they call it imposter syndrome. Yep. Like if they really knew me, they never would have hired me, right? If they really knew how weak I am and how terrible I am at this stuff, And how long can I keep the charade up? That's a real problem for women. I was raised in a Catholic household. My mother was phenomenal, smartest woman I ever met, tolerated nothing but the best of the best that you could get done. And A was almost not good enough. And she drove us. She was as strong a woman as I've ever met. But she never believed she could work outside the home. She never thought about going to college because it just wasn't what was done in her family growing up. So, you know, she, she was confident to a point, but she never really believed in herself. Then when my father died, she put herself back into college at 49 
right? My father died when he was 59, so she was probably 55. She went back to school. Good for her. And then got a job that was great. And she retired from that job when she was 80, right? So her coming out happened out of necessity, right? Mm-hmm. Mine kind of, I think what flipped the switch for me was dental school. I was very insecure coming into dental school. My first year, I was panicked I was going to fail. I was That first exam was torture. I hadn't had to sit for an exam for years, right? And I had no confidence at all. But by the time I hit my second year, I'm like, I can do this. I, I know, I'm going to school with a lot of men, and I'm doing it better than them. And oh, by the way, I take better class notes than all of you. So I'm selling them to you at $2 a week. <laughs> For you, entrepreneurial, right from the very beginning. Yeah, well, it was out of necessity. Uh, we didn't have enough money coming in, and I was a good note taker, and it was a job. And I type up the notes, and I stick them in people's mailboxes, and they'd pay me two dollars a week to take all the notes for every class. And as a result, nobody in my class ever went to lectures, and I got called into the dean's office like five times. I was told to stop taking notes because. People weren't going to class. I said, well, people are doing really well on the exams. And I was number one in my class. How, what were they going to do? Yell at me? Yeah, exactly. And president of your class. Yeah. And, and that, I think it was because I was the note taker. Yeah. Honest to God. I, I remember sitting in pre-clin and they were firing the president the freshman year because I don't know what happened in the dorm, but he made somebody mad. I'm at the back of the room doing my thing. And all of a sudden, I hear my name. And you know, pre-clin at the old Tufts pre-clin. And I said, what, what, did I just hear my name? And somebody said, yeah, we're nominating you to replace him for president. And I said, it's because I take notes for everybody, isn't it? And they said, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so that was, you know, I think you got to laugh about some of the stuff that happens. But honestly, I think dental school changed my attitude about myself in terms of I can do this. And then, um, you know, I, I still have moments when I'm like imposter syndrome sneaking in, but I push it away, you know? Well, they must be less and less now than, they, than it ever was before, right? You gotta be open to taking feedback. I go through a 360 evaluation every year and it's hard to hear feedback about yourself, but that's how you grow. Right. And you can be so insecure that you just can't stand anything that you perceive as a negative being directed towards you, but you've got to take a deep breath and take it for what it is. It's just feedback, take it or leave it, but take it, you know, if you trust the person giving it to you, this is what I always tell my staff. Look, if you've got a big gob of mustard on your chin and I'm not telling you, and we're in a meeting, I have just insulted you. So let's make sure when I have mustard on my chin, you tell me. And they do. They really do. They, it's the best way to grow and, and keep yourself emotionally grounded. Nobody's perfect. Dentists think they have to be perfect. And that's the worst, worst thing you can believe about yourself. I, I actually had a student say that last night, you know, that she was really, she's becoming unhappy, you know, being at home with the COVID thing. And she's just being overwhelmed by her responsibilities for her family and the kids being at home and studying and worrying about getting back to clinic. And I said, it doesn't have to be perfect. Why do you hold yourself to that high of an expectation? It's never going to be perfect. So you're always going to be thinking that everything is bad. You've got to look at what's good about it. And, uh, you know, hopefully that changed a little bit for her, but she was, she was really overwhelmed almost to tears. Yeah, no such thing as perfection. Mm-mm, I agree. I've been trapped in my house with my daughter and Scott and the baby and my husband. And I'm trapped in my a two by three corner of a room because the baby runs the house. He's three and he's able to undo locks and open doors and scream things. And he loves to be on my conference calls and sitting in Zoom meetings. And uh, honestly, my mother was the kind of woman who cleaned the house top to bottom every quarter, right? My husband suddenly said to me yesterday, he goes, you know what? There's dust all over these walls. And I'm like, yep, and I don't care. (laughs) 
Good for you. Good we for you. We have clean laundry on a daily basis, and we do sit down to dinner now because we're all trapped in the house. So look at the bright side. Perfect. All right. Well, listen, I can't thank you enough for your frank discussion about where you've been, how you got there, and what it takes to, to be a female leader in this world. And what you're doing as far as leading the charge for dentistry in, in general with, with the work the ADA is producing is amazing. So thank you on behalf of all of us, because I do wholeheartedly think that the ADA is coming through. I think that members are seeing the value of the ADA more than ever before and the value of organized dentistry, because right now in the middle of this pandemic, People need the support that you guys are providing, and it's really, really welcomed and appreciated, I think. Thanks, Mary Jane, and thanks for this opportunity. You know, oh, it's, thank you. I love hearing people's stories, so if I can add to your little portfolio, I'm happy to do it. Well, I appreciate that, Kath. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanlon. If you like our show and want to know more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation.